verses 1 through 12. Listen now to the word of the Lord. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. Welcome, everyone. It's good to be um, back here at the seminary, and welcome to all of you on Zoom. Uh, again, I want to just encourage everyone to um, come to our in-person services if you're able, um, but also if you are not feeling well, um, you know, please stay home as well, okay? So let's pray together. Lord, we thank you again for this uh, time that we have to come before you in worship. And now in the hearing of your word, give us insight into who you are to increase our confidence in you so that we may live the life as you have called us as citizens of your kingdom. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So this is now the second in the series of sermons I'll be preaching on the Beatitudes, or Macarisms, if you prefer. We saw that Jesus gave a series of statements, series of blessings. He said that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, and so on. Jesus declares these blessings. These are not new rules or a set of shoulds that must be obeyed. These are not the Ten Commandments version 2.0. Of course, we should pursue faithful discipleship and seek to be merciful, meek, peacemakers, pure in heart. But Jesus is not insisting that we become any of these things in order to be blessed. Rather, he simply says that such people are blessed. They are blessed by God. They are descriptions, not prescriptions. The Beatitudes declare what already is and will be according to the reality of God and God's kingdom. Last week, Jesus said, for those who are destitute in spirit, who have nothing to claim for themselves, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And today, we want to consider the second of these sayings, these Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. To mourn is to be human. These days, I know that we are all mourning the loss 
of human physical contact, of hugs, even handshakes. We are mourning the loss of pleasures, like dining out at a restaurant, going to the movies, or simply hanging out with friends. Students are mourning the loss of being on campus, of in-class instructions, of socialization, and maybe just learning in general. Parents are mourning the loss of having some time alone away from their kids. More seriously, many are mourning the loss of jobs, their homes, their health, and even their loved ones during this season. As Ecclesiastes 3 and Jesus reminds us in Matthew 9, perhaps this is a time of weeping. Perhaps this is a time to mourn. There are innumerable reasons to mourn. Some good, some bad. And so I thought it would be helpful this morning to begin with the two instances in which we know about in which Jesus wept. I'm certain that Jesus wept and mourned on many more occasions. He was, after all, as Isaiah 53 prophesied, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But there are these two occasions of which we are explicitly told. First, in John 11, Jesus is taken to the tomb where his recently deceased friend Lazarus has been laid, and we are told that Jesus wept. Those around him saw Jesus' tears as evidence of Jesus' great love for Lazarus. There are easily a dozen or so different words related to mourning in the Bible, such as grieving, having sorrow, shedding tears, wailing, crying, and so on. But the word mourning in the Beatitudes is the word that is most often used to describe the grief when someone dies. This is the deepest and most profound mourning that we can experience. And Jesus experienced it, and he wept. At the very least, I hope that this will give you permission to weep and to mourn freely. John Stott rightly remarked, some Christians seem to imagine that especially if they are filled with the Spirit, they must wear a perpetual grin on their faces and be continually boisterous and bubbly. How unbiblical can one become? We should never imply that tears, wailing, and other strong expressions of emotional distress as a sign of weak faith or a lack of trust in God. I hope it also keeps us from judging a mourner's composure, someone's lack of tears, as somehow an automatic sign of a stronger faith. Jesus wept. Jesus wept even though he knew that Lazarus would be raised from the dead. Jesus wept even though he knew that eventually Lazarus would be raised to eternal life. Jesus wept even though he knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that death does not get the last word. He wept over his own grief and he wept with others as he saw and shared in their mourning. The other time that Jesus wept 
occurs in Luke 19, where Jesus weeps over the city of Jerusalem. He weeps because he saw the destruction that lay ahead for the city and its people because they did not recognize the things that make for peace. They missed their opportunity by rejecting the Prince of Peace. These days, when we consider what's going on in our country and in the world, it may be hard to find hope. I know many of you are understandably exasperated, dumbfounded, angry, and probably feeling a few other strong emotions. But I hope that even as many of you are filled with justifiable outrage and frustration at what's going on, that you will also find room to mourn. I hope you are also weeping over the communities that are burning out west, that you are also grieving over the towns that have been overrun by hurricanes and tornadoes, that you are in sorrow over the cities that continue to struggle with protests and violence. I hope you are lamenting with those who have lost employment, their homes, their health, and their loved ones. I doubt many of us are as sensitive as the prophet Jeremiah, but I hope we can feel something of what he expressed for his people. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughters of my people. Jesus wept for the death of his friend and for the coming destruction of his beloved city. Those are two good reasons for us to mourn as well. But there is one other reason for mourning that we should not neglect. James 4 says this, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. This is not a popular scripture verse that people memorize, but it is a reminder that we also must hear. The psalmist similarly confesses, my iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head, my heart fails me. The psalmist likewise mourns over his iniquities, over his sins. Now this is not to suggest that you walk around forever with doom and gloom upon your downward faces. But there ought to be in us some sense of sin and mourning over it. The Apostle Paul once wrote to the Corinthians and said, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? What ought to have been a cause for mourning and repentance had somehow become a source of pride for the Corinthians. It's unthinkable that someone would be proud of this scandalous, sinful act. And yet, and yet, we also live in a world when so much of what ought to bring us to tears, what so much of ought to be received in repentance, 
as tragic, gets packaged as entertainment or politicized so that instead of grieving, we find ourselves mocking or laughing at others. Did you know that in some churches in the past, there used to be something called a mourner's bench? We don't have one here at the seminary, but if we did, it would be right here, right in front of the, uh, the pulpit. It was something that John Wesley and the Methodists created for their worship gatherings. They would place a pew or a bench in the front, and when people heard the sermon and were convicted about their sins, they would repent and they would come and they would kneel at the mourner's bench and mourn over their sins. And they would pray and they would receive a word of forgiveness and comfort. Jesus says that those who mourn, and he says that those who are mourning, not those who once mourned in the past, but those who are in a state of mourning now will be comforted. And it's implied that they will be comforted by God. While there is, of course, some relief in having a good cry or having the sympathy of your friends nearby, Jesus says this comfort comes from God. God is the one who will be responsible for your comfort. Let me explain this a little bit. In the Bible, in the New Testament, um, sometimes the passive verb is used. And when it's used, it sometimes indicates that it is a hidden action of God. Without stating it directly, the passive verb, sometimes called a, the uh, divine passive, points to a hidden action of God. For example, in Acts 3, when Peter and John are on their way to a prayer meeting, they meet a man who's crippled. And Peter takes him by the right hand, he raises him up, and, is, um, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Were made strong is in the passive form, and it implies that it was made strong by God. Right? We know this. Peter says, it wasn't me, it's God who did it. So we see here an action of healing, which was done by God, though it's not explicitly stated. Similarly, 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, was caught up by God. We know that this was an action of God. The writer of Hebrews 10.10, and by that we have been sanctified, again, who's sanctified? By God through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So when Jesus says here that they will be comforted, he's talking about they will be comforted by God. And this is the crucial point. When it comes to mourning over sin or over death, only God can forgive, only God can raise the dead. Only God can give you genuine and lasting comfort. Blessed are those who mourn over their sins, for they will be comforted by the forgiveness of God. As it says in Psalm 32, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. 
Likewise, when it comes to mourning over our beloved cities, only God can give you genuine comfort by the promise of the kingdom of heaven. When it comes to death, only God can give you the eternal comfort by the promise of resurrection. Let me say it again. Christians are a people who mourn. We mourn. We mourn like, like everybody else. We are not protected from mourning. We are not protected from all the ordinary pains that the rest of the world must endure and mourn. We are not given guarantees against cancer, car accidents, and catastrophic loss. In addition, we mourn even more than the world because we ought to care more about the world, about sin, and about injustice. We mourn more because we love more or should love more, and we sense that this world is not the way it should be. C.S. Lewis once wrote about his experiences of mourning uh, when he lost his wife. In a grief observed, Lewis said that his, gri uh, his grief felt like fear and he could not understand why God felt so absent when he needed God the most. Lewis wondered, what can this mean? Why is God so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in time of trouble? Maybe that's a question that you've asked in a time of mourning. It's a question that the Psalms ask over and over and over again. Did you know that more than a third of the Psalms are categorized as lament Psalms? That means that a third of the Psalms, a third of the prayers that the people prayed are essentially prayers of mourning. For example, Psalm 13 begins, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Like C.S. Lewis, this is someone who is mourning the pain of God's silence, God's seeming absence. I'm sure it's a question that many of you, like me, must have prayed more than once. We mourn, we lament, like everyone else. But here's the difference. We mourn, but not without hope. Even in our deepest mornings, we have this hope of comfort. You see, the lament psalms do not end with a question and despair. Though the psalmist suffers and mourns, he knows that comfort is coming. In fact, the very act of lamenting to God demonstrates faith. The question of why are you not answering assumes that God does answer. The relationship is still there. They're still talking. And so the psalm does not end with hopelessness, but with the hope of comfort. Psalm 13 ends, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has, he has dealt bountifully with me. Honest, raw mourning is expressed, but despite the current circumstances, despite the present experience of mourning, 
the psalmist knows and expresses a trust in God and so offers thanks and praise. This is the general pattern of the lament psalms. Mourning is genuine. It is painful. But it is also followed by expectation of deliverance and therefore hope. Eugene Peterson says this, Christians are not fussy moralists who cluck their tongues over a world going to hell. Christians are people who praise the God who is on their side. Christians are not pious pretenders, pretenders in the midst of a decadent culture. Christians are robust witnesses to the God who is our help. Christians are robust witnesses to the God who is our help. It's not that we don't mourn. It's that in that mourning, we know that God is our help. We mourn, but we pray and we trust God. We mourn and we admit that we are broken, that our world is broken, and that we cannot fix it by our own strengths. We cannot fix it, but we know one who can. We believe that there is someone who has broken into our broken world, into our broken hearts, and has brought healing and good news of great joy. Most of you are probably familiar with the first two lines of the poem, Solitude, by Laia Wheeler Wilcox, by Ella Wheeler Wilcox. It starts, laugh and the world laughs with you. Weep and you weep alone. The rest of the poem essentially repeats this sentiment over and over again. It's a little discouraging. And it ends with these equally depressing lines. Feast and your halls are crowded. Fast and the world goes by. Succeed and give and it helps you live. But no man can help you die. There is room in the halls of pleasure for a long and lordly train. But one by one, we must all file on through the narrow aisles of pain. The poem insists on solitude and loneliness in the face of mourning and death. While you might have friends and laughter for a time, in the end, you must file on through the narrow aisles of pain and of death by yourself. And Jesus says, no, that is not true. That is not the case. You are not alone. I am with you always, he tells us, even to the end of the age. You will be comforted. You will be comforted by God. You will be accompanied by the Holy Spirit, even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And we will eventually all have to walk through that valley. Even then, you need not be afraid and despair because the Lord, the good shepherd, is by your side. You need not remain in mourning. You need not despair because God is with you and will be with you to comfort you. The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction. He comforts us in all of our mourning. And to the Thessalonians, he wrote, Now 
may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort, eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts. We have a God who comforts us, who is with us. When you are mourning, this is the truth that you have to cling to. When you mourn over your sins, you have to cling to this comfort of forgiveness that is possible. When you mourn over the death of a loved one, you have this comfort that you can cling to in light of the resurrection. Mourning is not the last word. The psalmist tells us, those who sow in tears shall reap shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. You will be comforted. Let me close with this. Nicholas Walterstorff uh, is a professor, or was a professor of theology and philosophy. And he went through this painful experience of losing his 25-year-old son to a mountain climbing accident. And he wrote a, a, a book about that. And to honor his son, to voice his grief, and in the hope of comforting others, he wrote something called Lament for a Son. And in it, he reflects on our reading for today. And he says this, the mourners are those who have caught a glimpse of God's new day and who ache with all their being for that new day's coming and break out into tears when confronted with its absence. They're the ones who realize that in God's realm of peace, there is neither death nor tears and who ache whenever they see someone crying tears over death. The mourners are aching visionaries. The mourners are aching visionaries. The mourners are blessed because they understand that this world is not the way it should be. They recognize that tears and death and untimely death are not normal, are not intended by God. Rather, they are signs of a broken world that is in need of healing and salvation. They ache for a time when death will be no more. They ache for the healing of our cities and they ache for the forgiveness of sins. Those who mourn, these aching visionaries, have already begun to experience God's comfort, but they can see ahead to the fullest experience of God's comfort when God's kingdom is fully realized. They and we also can achingly look to a time as promised in Revelation 21, when we will be in the constant presence of God, when God will tenderly wipe away every tear and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Behold, God is making all things new. And that's why Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted by God. Let's pray together.
Lord, many of us are mourning of what has been lost, um, especially this year. And as the Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans 12, to weep with those who weep. And so God, help us to mourn and to mourn with others, but not without hope. Help us to cling to the promise that you will comfort us in our mourning and help us to ache for your kingdom when death and mourning shall be no more. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.